Welcome to Today on Broadway for Thursday, August 13th, 2020. I'm arts and culture writer Ashley Steves. We have a jam-packed show for you today, so I want to get into it as quickly as possible. A couple of items of housekeeping, though. Yesterday in the feed, Matt sat down with the Hollywood reporter Scott Feinberg for an episode of Tell Me More to discuss his recent article, How Do You Solve a Problem Like the Tonys? Matt and I discussed that on the show the other day. That article talked about the confusion to put it lightly, (laughs) that has surrounded the Tony Awards, the lack of communication from the wing. Uh, Matt and Scott got into all that a bit deeper and discussed what Broadway could look like upon its return, all the good things that we're all still completely unsure about, so be sure to give that one a listen. One thing to be sure of, though, is our Patreon at patreon.com slash broadwayradio, broadwayradio.com slash patreon. Your support has, does, and will continue to mean the world to us. All right, let's get into today's news. And the biggest story is an official follow-up to something Matt teased on the show the other day with Alicia, and that is that the new Broadway musical Diana will head to Netflix ahead of its official opening. The musical, which tells the story of Diana, Princess of Wales, had begun previews ahead of the shutdown caused by the coronavirus pandemic and was scheduled to open on March 31st. The musical will still open on Broadway next spring with a new intended opening night of May 25th, 2021. But first, the Christopher Ashley helmed production will be filmed on the stage of the Longacre Theater, without an audience, to then be released on Netflix sometime in the coming months. The production safety protocols have received approval from Actors' Equity Association. The provisions include routine testing, isolation plans for all actors and stage managers, and HVAC changes to ensure proper ventilation backstage. The full Broadway company is expected to return to their roles for the screen, including Jenna DeWall in the title role. This marks the first Broadway show to return to the theater with an in-person-slash-filmed hybrid model. We've talked about other regional shows doing this, particularly the Berkshire Group's Godspell making its return. Not doing film, that's all entirely in-person and not in a theater, they're doing it outdoors. We've also talked about this across the pond with the old Vic series, which is on stage without an audience and being filmed. This will be the first show in New York that has set plans to return to a stage. Kind of exciting. I know we've kind of disparaged Diana a bit on the show, though I didn't get to see it in previews, uh, mainly because I was seeing company as often as I could. This might not be the First show, everyone is clamoring to get taped, but this is really good news, both for creatives and for fans alike. We'll give people, of course, the opportunity to see the show if they weren't going to get to New York to see it anyway, or even if they were in New York and didn't know if they would be able to afford it. They'll now get to see it with a Netflix subscription. I'm assuming they're not going to go the Disney Plus route like they're doing with Mulan and charging like an extra 30 bucks for it. At least I hope not. But if this is successful, it opens the doors for other shows to do it. The question, I think, will be if we know how successful it will actually be until theaters open their doors again and we get to see the actual box office numbers. But I don't know how long this has been planned for, but we've seen the release of Hamilton, as we talked about. 
that could lead to other streaming platforms doing that. There's clearly a market. We know Netflix is already doing adaptations of several musicals into full movies, such as The Prom and The Boys in the Band. Add that to other movie musicals in progress or ready to open, like In the Heights and West Side Story. Also, a side note and other news from Wednesday, the Come From Away movie adaptation, we actually also received an update on Wednesday that creators Irene Sankoff and David Hine have turned in a draft for the movie. So that is still very much in progress. So there is definitely an audience for both pro tapes and full adaptations on these platforms and for theatrical releases. That is not the problem. I know we already have some other shows, at least two or three that have been taped that would be great for the streaming market and could go a similar route, some of which have already closed, some of which were still open on Broadway when it shut down. So there will certainly be a lot of work as far as the permissions and negotiations that will have to be worked out for those to come to light. As I've already said, I think everyone calling for pro tapes similar to Hamilton for every show are very optimistic, as much as I would love that to happen, to open up theater to more people around the country and the world. But where there are those similar pro tapes, I think right now streaming platforms should be clamoring for them. Speaking of Hamilton streaming and the success of that, on Wednesday we received the first indicator of how well the musical did in its Disney Plus platform release. According to the Seven Park data on the Variety Intelligence platform, maybe unsurprisingly, but streaming numbers for the pro tape slash film were far greater than anything on any other platform streamed in the month of July. 37% of the research firm's panel of viewers in the U.S. watched the film musical last month, which was almost three times the number that watched the second widest reaching title for that month, which was Netflix's true crime docuseries Unsolved Mysteries. That was at 14%. Now, for a little bit of background, Seven Park and VIP provide data from a range of 15,000 to 20,000 U.S. households that are watching on a smart TV or a connected TV device like a Roku or Amazon Fire, the like. Following that was The Old Guard on Netflix, Hannah on Amazon, and Palm Springs on Hulu. Those were all under 10% of their viewership numbers. The Hamilton audience actually constituted the largest audience amassed by any one program over the course of one month from Seven Parks tracking on Disney+, Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, and Apple TV+, Plus for this year so far. In fact, even in the previous month, the show that reached the most viewers was Space Force, which was seen by just 8% of panel viewers. Let me remind you, Hamilton was 37%. Netflix still beat out Disney Plus for average time spent watching at 510 minutes to Disney's 246, which is not really surprising given, uh, given Disney's parochial catalog. This is still obviously great news for Disney Plus, which, if I need to remind you, bought the rights to Hamilton for $75 million. As of Monday, the platform reached 60.5 million paid subscribers, which means that it has hit its goal of 60 million to 90 million subscriptions 
it had aimed that for that goal for 2024. <laughs> so they're a few years early on that, thanks to Hamilton. Thankfully for them, they paid for it and survived rather than survived, but paid for it. So it'll be interesting to see what those numbers are going to look like this coming month or this month rather, but also this coming month, assumingly a major drop since it's no longer a new release, but that Hamilton bump is a big one as we have to talk about accessibility as we continue to talk about accessibility, especially coming off the news of Diana. Obviously, Hamilton is a bit of an outlier, but with that major success, definitely a conversation we should continue to have. In other news on Wednesday, speaking of Disney, after a two-month standoff, Walt Disney World and Actors' Equity Association have finally reached an agreement over COVID-19 testing that will allow actors to return to work at the resort. According to Deadline, Walt Disney World notified the union that it had taken steps to provide the state of Florida with a temporary testing site that will offer free testing to Florida residents, including Disney World employees and their immediate families. A Disney spokesperson said the establishment of a COVID testing site was not undertaken to satisfy any particular union's demands. Mm-hmm. In a statement, Equity President Kate Schindel said, quote, we have been consistent that testing is an important part of ensuring a safe workplace for equity performers, and today I'm pleased to see that Disney World has agreed. With the news that Disney will make testing available for equity performers and others in the park, I'm happy to announce that Equity's executive committee has signed a memorandum of understanding with Disney for equity performers to return. The test is a self-administered nasal swab that will allow workers to swab their own noses from their vehicles under the supervision of trained medical personnel. Results will be delivered within three to five business days. Now, this debate has been going on since June 23rd, which feels like a lifetime ago at this point. Equity represents 750 park employees at the Florida Resort. Different rules at the California Park, which is not equity represented. I am very glad for the actors that there has finally been a resolution in this long and unnecessary battle. I deeply, deeply wish them the best of luck if they are planning on returning to work. Let's quickly run through some quick news items, all having to do with upcoming online offerings. First, coming up on Saturday, August 22nd, an online reading of the new play Judgment Day, written by Robert Ulin and directed by Matthew Penn, will be presented to benefit Barrington Stage Company and the Actors Fund. The all-star cast will include Jason Alexander, Patti Lapone, Santina Fontana, and Michael McKean. The play follows Sammy, played by Alexander, a deeply corrupt, morally bankrupt lawyer who has a near-death experience in which he encounters a terrifying angel, played by Lapone, who threatens him with eternal damnation, leading him to team up with a Catholic priest in an attempt to redeem himself. I love this already. The cast will also feature Loretta Devine, Josh Johnston, Bianca Laverne Jones, Julian Emile Lerner, Justina Machado, Carol Mansell, Michael Mastro, and Elizabeth Stanley. 
The reading of Judgment Day will premiere on the 22nd at 7.30 p.m. and will be available for viewing for a limited period of 96 hours only through Tuesday, August 25th. Access to the show is available with a donation of $35 or more and can be ordered by visiting www.barringtonstageco.org. I will absolutely be in attendance for that. Also on Wednesday, we got at least some of the cast for MCC Theater's upcoming Miscast 20. As previously announced due to the ongoing pandemic, the Shears Gala will be presented virtually. Participating artists include Tony Nominee, Adrian Warren, Joshua Henry, Heather Headley, Beanie Feldstein, Rob McClure, Nicolette Robinson, and Philippa Sue. The evening will also include appearances from School Girls or the African Mean Girls play playwright Joc- Jocelyn Bio, recent this week on Broadway guest Raul Esparza, and the one and only Judith Light. The event will feature a free raffle to win a table for 10 Miscast 21 and a toast with the performers on stage after the show. Funds raised will help MCC produce new work off-Broadway as well as support its youth company, in-school partnerships, and the Mental Health Coalition, which will receive 10% of funds raised for the evening. The broadcast will be held on September 13th at 8 p.m. Eastern on MCC's YouTube channel, and it is F-R-E-E free to the public. And last up, the stars that will be participating in this year's Sleep Out colon stage and screen have been announced. Rachel Brosnahan, Audra McDonald, Ariana DeBose, Adrian Warren, Rachel Ziegler, Judy Kuhn and more will sleep out virtually for the live broadcast benefiting Covenant House. This year, the fundraiser will go virtual with over 100 Broadway and Hollywood stars sleeping on the floors of their apartments and backyards and other safe spaces to ensure that young people facing homelessness will not be ignored or forgotten during this global crisis. Sleep Out colon stage and screen will feature a live broadcast with the stars beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on August 24th. So I've got two-ish recommendations for this Thursday. The first, Matt and Scott actually talked about it a little bit on the Tell Me More episode, as it is from The Hollywood Reporter. That is a new guest column from Danny Burstein reflecting on his COVID diagnosis. This is actually the second column that he's written for the publication. Talks a little bit more about his time in the hospital and now being back at home caring for wife and fellow Broadway actor Rebecca Luker, who, as we all know by now, has been battling ALS. We love Danny and Rebecca here, as we'll all say as often as possible. Beyond relieved he recovered, but in the piece he talks about what recovery actually looks like, the range of symptoms and side effects since leaving the hospital, including what he thought was a heart attack, and they're not really sure what it was. Uh, it also details Rebecca's worsening condition and about finding some kind of hope through that. Needless to say, this is not a feel-good recommendation. It's, in fact, a very, very difficult read. I'm struggling to not cry even talking about it right now. Uh, it is a very important read, though, so I hope you read it and give it the time it deserves. 
My other recommendation is actually a feel-good recommendation, thank God. It comes from Vulture, and it's actually five recommendations, because right now the publication is running a five flops in five days series. As the name suggests, they're looking back at notable bombs in detail. My absolute favorite things. First up, they discuss the 1966 musical, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman from Charles Strauss, Lee Adams, and David Newman. A show that was actually well reviewed, but cost so much money for the time and it closed in three months. I think it was $600,000 that it costs. Again, this is 1966, so think about it. Uh, next up was <laughs> next up was Paris is Out, which was Richard Seth's 1970 play that was produced by David Black and one Donald J. Trump. God knows what Broadway would have looked like if the show had been a success. We might have had a very different world overall, though. And then on Wednesday, they they covered the gloriously notorious Moose Murders by Arthur Bicknell. Really how every other bad show in history is is measured. Uh, (laughs) Frank Rich said that there are two groups of people, those who had seen Moose Murders and those who hadn't. If you were in that former group of those who have seen it, please direct your tell-all to my email inbox as soon as possible. The fourth day of flops, this is like 12 days of Christmas to me, <laughs> will be out this morning. So catch up on those first three and then be sure to check out the new one when it's live. I certainly will be. Of course, as always, the link to that and everything we've discussed today will be in the show notes. All right, that is all for today's show. So thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. And if you are willing, able, and so inclined, you can back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash broadwayradio or broadwayradio.com slash Patreon. And as always, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at no, this is Ashley. Have a great Thursday, everybody. And Alicia and I will be back to talk with you tomorrow. Tomorrow.